The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. Welcome to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Rian Jones. We spoke about her article in Tribune, an enterprise allowance of the left, which looks at the disappearance of working class voices from the arts and how the left might rebuild working class culture. We also chatted about her article on similar themes entitled The Arts Class, which was published in the Progressive Review. Today's interview was recorded before the December general election, but having listened back and given the increased necessity of rebuilding a left working class culture, it feels even more relevant than it did before Labour's electoral defeat. If you'd like to hear the extended version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a supporter of the show. You can get access to extended versions of all PTO episodes from $3 a month, which is just over £2. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Rian Jones grew up in South Wales and is now based in London, where she writes on history, politics, popular culture, and the places where they intersect. So, reading your article in Tribune and thinking about that middle-class takeover of cultural production that, that you describe that occurred through the 1990s and the 2000s, I found myself thinking about my own relationship to popular culture as, as a kid, and, and I sort of imagine that we might have had not dissimilar experiences in the sense that we're, we're of a similar age, we're both in our late 30s, our class backgrounds might not have been wildly dissimilar. I mean, in my case, I came from a, a, a kind of uh, a downwardly mobile middle-class family and, and grew up on a council estate in the West Midlands and obviously you grew up in the in the Welsh Valleys and I think one of the things that occurred to me was that 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 increasing middle class takeover of so much of the media was a very palpable thing to me in the the early 2000s you know I remember being aware of it before reading your work for instance or, or the work of Mark Fisher who talked about this a lot and I don't know how it was for you, but for me, the symbols of it at the time, for some reason, were uh, firstly the the actor Benedict Cumberbatch, um, who, you know, aside from the very posh name, you know, he didn't he didn't merely play Richard III, but is actually distantly related to him. And the other one, although it, although it's an example from America, is is the Strokes, who, mm. you know, they're kind of one of the last cases of the British music press having much success at presenting a, a guitar band as some sort of edgy countercultural force. And, uh, and of course, the two leading members of the band went to the Institute La Rose in Switzerland, which is, you know, is literally the most expensive boarding school in the world. You know, the fees are higher than they are to, to send your kid to Eton. And, and for me, there was very much the sense of an intensification of that middle-class takeover, which was well underway in the 1990s, but became even more extreme in, in the 2000s. Um, so could you talk a bit about your own relationship to that period of time? Um, yeah, I mean, it's very, um, very similar to your own, to be honest. I think something that was very obvious during the 90s was that the idea of particularly working class identity, what working class looked like and, and what it sounded like um, was something that was becoming increasingly stereotyped and simplified. 
Um, and in the in the process of that, a lot of sort of authentic working class identities, which didn't really fit into a preconceived idea of what it was to be working class, um, got edged out. Um, like the sort of the, the iconic example that I um, occasionally talk about is uh, the, the completely manufactured manufactured um, like war between Oasis and Blur. Um, but the way that both those bands were presented in the press was very much as working class versus middle class. Um, and the framing of that was that they they picked Oasis as um, you know, and they emphasised the fact that they were you know, oafish, lumpen, um, semi-criminal, uneducated. Uh, whether they were or they weren't, that was the way they were presented, and that was characterised as what it meant to be working class, like how how authentic they were and how how genuine, um, how genuinely proletarian. Um, then you had Blur juxtaposed with that, who were presented as a middle class band, and the signifiers of the middle classness was. That they they were educated, they were intellectually curious, um, they read books, they knew about uh, sort of French philosophy and that kind of thing. Um, so this this weird sort of class essentialist um, framing was put around that, and that was something that I think was characteristic of the 90s as a whole. Like if if you wanted to be perceived as or presented as working class, you had to sort of play up to the the worst and most negative elements of that. And if you again displayed any sort of intellectual curiosity or your your music was experimental or or interesting, then that suddenly got categorised as um, as hopelessly pretentious and uh, middle class. That that was something certainly I received it as, as quite new in the 90s. That was a definite change from what I considered to be working class because I was aware, growing up of other traditions, both of um, sort of working class self education, the fact that you know you you read books and that didn't make you middle class. Like it's possible to be working class and read books, etc. Like the monetary preachers were sort of the exemplar of that but also um the sort of the the 60s and 70s tradition of working class kids going to art schools as higher education became more accessible um getting into like marxist theory and theories of conceptual art and stuff there and uh, forming bands or becoming becoming artists or writers through that so the idea that you couldn't be working class and pretentious or you couldn't be working class and intellectually curious was um something i I received as something that I was quite resistant to, but it seemed to be everywhere in the 90s. And so I, I was also, obviously, coming from a mining community, I was very much brought up with the traditions of the battles of the 80s, like so the idea of um, of strong unions and the idea of capital versus labour, that kind of thing was something um, I just absorbed. It was it was kind of instinctive or, or second nature. And then you got into the 90s and suddenly that, um, like those binaries and those struggles um, because of the end of the Soviet Union and the sort of liberal triumphalism and uh, Fukuyama's end, end of history, that kind of thing, um, suddenly no one really cared about that. And if you uh, if, if you still believed that material circumstances divided people into one class or the other, that was um, you know really inexplicable to a lot of people. And it was also very it was passe and uncool apart from anything else. There was this um, yeah just, just incredible sort of triumphalist. Um, that carelessness in, in in the 90s in a sort of positive way, like I think because again, like the the economy was was booming towards the middle and end of that decade, and people really, you know, didn't have a great deal to worry about. I think they they didn't have as much to worry about as um, they they would have had in the 80s. But there was a whole a whole swathe of the country that had been completely economically devastated in the 80s, um, including my own part of the country, um, that then was just more or less erased from um, from public consciousness and from politics in the 90s. Like New Labour didn't want anything to do with their old post-industrial working class voters. So they just didn't um, didn't really talk about them at all. And in popular culture as well, the, the idea of, you know, a band like the Manics was, was sort of just out on their own there. The idea of a, 
of an industrial socialist working class band just wasn't um, wasn't something that figured anywhere. To, to be working class, you know, you had to be like Oasis, whether or not Oasis were were working class. And we can argue about the sort of fine gradations of Oasis, the uh, class identity, probably. But that's um, that's what working class was in the nineties, I think. Even though you know that involved the erasure of loads of other genuine working class identities. Obviously, a band like the Manics retrospectively get bracketed in with Britpop. And um, and thinking about Britpop and, and that whole period, I wonder if people of our cohort have a bit of a different relationship to this than people who are are a bit older. Because thinking about people like Jeremy Gilbert and, and Mark Fisher, say, their position regarding Britpop and, and stuff on the fringes of it like the Manics, I think the position they they take, which you know, in some ways I think is just the, the correct and proper position, is that, that this stuff was uh, that this stuff was mostly awful. Um, <laughs> but but I think I think their harshness about it is partly related to the fact that they were a bit older and, and had more of a direct recollection and, and relationship uh, with uh, punk and post punk, and. Um, and you know, and I remember reading someone. I, I think it was a member of the Fall was quoted in the NME as describing a Manix gig as like watching kids pretend to be the Clash in a school play. And uh, you know, retrospectively, that sounds that sounds absolutely right. But then our cohort wasn't around for the Clash or, or for the Fall, for that matter. Yeah. And so yeah. and so at the time, you know, a a, a working class band like the Manix dropping references to to Marx and, and, and Foucault and whatnot uh, was, was pretty pretty exciting to my 14-year-old self. And obviously it's also during a period of time where people listened less and had less uh, and had less access to to music of earlier periods and tended to listen more to to contemporary stuff. Uh, whereas mm. now, you know, it's it's far easier and far more common to to listen very widely across different eras. And so although I you know, would broadly agree with 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 Gilbert and Fisher on 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 Britpop. I, I I do think it perhaps somewhat misses the fact that, however bad the Britpop era was, it was still on the tail end of social democracy, which which meant there was more working class in, involvement than there was during that later period of of the early two thousands. Yeah, and I think some sort of generational empathy has to be brought in when you're um, when you're sort of looking back at, um, at Britpop. You know, we didn't, and I, I was certainly someone who grew up wishing that I had been around for for punk. You know, I was a huge fan of the Clash, but there was no way I could um, I could see them live or or anything like that. So I did quite happily receive the Manix as a sort of ersatz Clash or the, the closest to that sort of thing that I would that I would get. And, and the fact that the Manics themselves sort of hark back to situationism and to um, 1968 and that kind of thing um, was great. You know, I was um, I got into all that history through them and the fact that they functioned as a sort of conduit for the, the history and politics of the past that I was discovering um, was great. I think. I mean, were they the best band in the world? No, of course not. You know, and, and Britpop wasn't. Um, yeah, I think I think was um, pretty much Drek retrospectively, but yeah, at the time there was definitely. Um, I don't know, there, there were, particularly in the early stages of Britpop, I think, sort of the, the early 90s, um, before it became quite so commercialised, maybe, there were really interesting things happening. It was much more um, ethnically, racially diverse. There were a lot more women involved. Um, it was a lot more, um, not sort of heavily political, but it was more kind of oppositional and subversive than it later became. So I think that sort of thing was a bit of a hook for me as well, being the sort of teenager I was um I didn't um I mean I never thought that the era I was living through as a teenager was like the best ever I was always really annoyed that I hadn't been around in um the 60s and 70s for example 
Um, but in about 10 years after that, looking back from the perspective of, um, you know, in my early 20s, and the only bands that were being held up as interesting at all were like, yeah, the Strokes and the Libertines. Um, I remember thinking back and going, God, the 90s actually weren't that bad. <laughs> they weren't as bad as I thought they were at the time. And yeah, and I think a lot of the, the reasons behind that was that we were at, um, as you say, at like the tail end or the, or the fag end of, of the 30 years that were a really exciting period for British pop culture. So in your article, you talk about the, the different things that supported working class cultural production, uh, both at the level of the state and the welfare system, but also in terms of the self-organisation of the working class in places like the Welsh Valleys. Um, uh, could you talk a bit about that? Because I think some of that is a, is a bit of a forgotten history. I mean, again, in retrospect, kind of extraordinary um, proto-socialist working class collectivist culture that um, mining towns developed in the early 20th century, especially in the Welsh Valleys, involved things. Um, yes, yeah, there were sort of there were welfare aspects to this um, culture and there were sort of artistic and leisure um, aspects as well. But all of it was built on the idea that everyone con- contributed something. Um, and that entitled them to the use of whatever service or whatever culture they were creating. Um, so classically, in um, the majority of mining communities, there were buildings called the Workmen's Hall or the Workmen's Institute or sometimes the Miners' Institute, which were um, like literally workers workers built those, um, sometimes from, from the ground up, carrying out the construction work themselves or chipping in like a penny a week from um, from their wages to pay for the construction work and then to pay for the staffing and the running of the building. And these buildings operated as um, a community space that was um, simultaneously political, social, and cultural. Like you could have union meetings in there, you'd have Labour Party meetings, or you'd just hear invited speakers. Um, but also, like, they also had cinema screens, um, they'd have um, a, a ballroom or a space dancing, they'd have a bar, um, like a, a billiard room or a pool room, all of this kind of thing. So they, they just were meant to be community hubs. Um, but they they were built in places where, um, I mean, yeah, in places like the, the mining towns in the Welsh Valleys were just literally, um, they sprang out of the ground. Like people, um, a pit was established and then housing for, for workers was put up, but there were hardly any other forms of social provision. Like there was no um, employers, you know, they, they built incredibly cheap small shitty houses for their workers, but they didn't build a hospital or they didn't um, didn't build a library that kind of thing. So um, workers developed that culture themselves in terms of, of healthcare. Like in um, the town I'm from, Tredega, people um, developed something called the Tredega Medical Aid Society, which again, really simple collectivist principles. People paid in a certain amount, which paid um, for the running of the hospital and the wages of, um, of medical staff. And that entitled them to use it free at the point of use whenever they need it. And that's the, um, the prototype that Bevan then drew on when he was um, establishing the NHS, because that was a, a really simple local example of how socialised uh, socialised care can work. And that infrastructure of, of welfare and care and creation effectively is destroyed because of the, the destruction of the industries themselves, right? Yeah, I mean, it's... Um... It's uh, yeah, it's it's a flaw that no one seems to take into account. But if you get rid of the mines, then obviously everything that is um, that's built on that industry um, completely collapses, in- including like all the yeah the in- institutions, the infrastructure, um, and even the community itself. Because obviously people, you know, including myself, like people don't don't stay there if there are no jobs and no prospects. 
And in terms of the nature of the culture that these institutions were fostering, I mean, one view might be that uh, that a lot of early trade union organising very much fed into a, a kind of respectability politics, where it's almost as if the the critique made by the rich of the poor is is internalised, and and working class people came to came to want to contradict the the way that they were perceived and portrayed by by bourgeois mm-hmm. society, um, which was as as as, as lazy, uh, feckless, given to various vices, not industrious, and and so on. And, and that rather than try and contest the morals of bourgeois society, that, that certain forms of working class culture actually mm-hmm. reproduced that morality and, and was, maybe, uh, was maybe reflective of, of a broader problem with the labour movement in Britain historically, um, which is that of, of not really aiming to transcend capitalism, but rather carving out a space of dignified livability uh, within capitalism. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, the sort of the the accommodation with capitalism um, and with industrialization um, that the labour movement adopted as it grew um, is something that, again, we we can look back from the perspective of of a few hundred years and say, yeah, maybe it could have been done differently. Um, but yeah, that that is what they chose to do, and I think it did. Um, and you can see even in a in a cultural, even in an aesthetic sense, um, a lot of early union marches and gatherings and even sort of non things that weren't specifically based on um, unionization, like things like Peterloo. Um, when people turned out for that, there was a huge emphasis on looking respectable. So you'd you'd wear your best clothes. Um, sometimes known as like your Sunday best. So you'd wear the same thing that you'd wear um, to go to chapel or church um, to show how, how seriously and, and respectably you um, you were taking this thing. Um, and again, like you, you can see reasons for that. Like if the, if the widespread um, at that time sort of political and, and press impression of the working class is a, you know, scruffy, ill-disciplined rabble, then there is um, a lot to be said for showing up and saying, no, actually, we can, you know, we can wash and dress ourselves. We can look perfectly respectable. We are, you know, human beings that can um, fit into a respectable bourgeois aesthetic context. Um, but yeah, again, that's that's a choice. And there were um, other traditions of, of protest or of political involvement that were were messier, I guess, and, and that were um, more intent on disrupting that kind of bourgeois aesthetic and saying, well, actually, no, it doesn't really matter if we are a, a dirty or disciplined rabble. We are, you know, still human beings. We're still entitled to um, to livable wage and um, working conditions that don't kill us. That kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I think there's always been this division between the the rough and the respectable working class is something that's always been there. I think since the since the working class was created, and it's something that working class people themselves have struggled with, I think, as well as um, as people outside that. And in terms of that history of self-organisation around the creation of a working class culture uh, and the institutions that can support people that aren't simply controlled and run by the state, what lessons do you think there are for us today from that history? Um, I guess the, the major one is that these things can be done without um, central state support. Like since um, ever since 1945, I guess when we had a, a Labour government that was was truly committed to working class provision, um, well, middle class provision, universal provision through the welfare state, um, there's been this tendency to think, okay, that's how it's done. Then um, you elect a Labour government, and then they're they're nice to you. <laughs> they, they establish um, all these great things, uh, which is what you know one way of doing it. it. It did work for a bit after 1945, but even before then, you know, working class communities were managing through sort of central. Um, collectivist provision they they were managing to create similar sorts of things like the, yeah the nhs was was replicated in miniature in the um 
the late 1800s, you know, by, by a small mining town. So the fact that that could be done um, is something that I've always found like immensely inspiring. Like it, it's great to have a big central version of that, which is the NHS, but surely it also means you can you can scale that down as well and you can replicate it in um, in your own communities. I and mean, it, it needn't even be something that, you know, that's so sort of vital and fundamental as, as healthcare. It could be a collective recording studio or a performance space or that kind of thing. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.